a Boston sports writer on a scale of one to, let's say, 406, how much more did you enjoy writing about Ted Williams than anything about the 2020 Red Sox? Uh, nice little work there with the 406. I see you think that. And uh, it's, it's a good thing he didn't sit out that weekend doubleheader against the Philadelphia Athletics and the season or you'd be asking me from one to three ninety nine, <laughs> and every single Boston sports writer would have reminded him for the rest of his life it was three nine 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 five. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's. Uh, do Do you kind of wish that there was like footage of that last doubleheader in Philadelphia in nineteen forty one the way there is for the last game of nineteen sixty? You know, there are about fifty thousand things I wish that there were footage for, and I have to remind myself sometimes that that it was a different time and you have to understand that in that particular situation it was late in the season the two teams weren't going anywhere and uh it's just although you would think that the 400 would be a big deal except that it wasn't something that hadn't happened in a long time right and so maybe if movie tone newsreels knew that this was the last time it was going to happen for X number of years and counting. Um, there, there's also a, um, I think it was 1963, um, a guy uh, named Al Luplo playing for the Red Sox made what everyone says was the greatest catch ever made, <clears throat> running toward the bullpen at Fenway where it juts out to 420. And the batter was Dick Williams and from the Red Sox, who later managed the team. And um, <clears throat> And Al Luplo made this catch, but it was late in the season. It was a weekday day game, and uh, there's, there's no footage of it. And, uh, and there was also uh, Jack Baker, um, a guy, a minor league player with the Red Sox, played a little bit in the big leagues. I believe, I believe he had one major league home run, and he was searching a few years ago to see if there was footage. But um, a bunch of us tried to – go through archives. But again, it was, it was in the, I think the seventies and it was late in the season and, and the TV stations would go with the cameras and film parts of the game, but um, it, no one has it. So that will never happen again, obviously, because every pitch is chronicled somewhere in major league baseball. Yeah. And there's something about, especially <laughs> that 1941 doubleheader going back to that before we dive into the meat of what we're talking about with Teddy, that, um, there's something kind of cool about it living just in our imaginations every time we read about it again, whether it's in his autobiography or one of the Montville or Ben Bradley Jr. books, that you just kind of have to picture yourself when they describe kind of the Philadelphia crowd, like of all sports fans to do this in front of, the crowd in Philly <laughs> slowly getting on his side more and more as he hits yeah. line drive after line drive and climaxes with the last double that puts a hole in one of the loudspeakers that he said Connie Mack had to replace in the offseason. It's, it's just, it almost reads so well that I kind of wonder if the footage might even spoil it just because it's, it's so big in the imagination. Well, it, it reads so well if written by the right person. Right. And, uh, and you, you obviously Lee Monville, Ben Bradley Jr. Uh, there's a guy named um, um, Ed Liss, Joe Ed Liss. Uh, he wrote a biography of Ted Williams and I knew him. Ed Lynn, I'm sorry, Ed, Ed Lynn. Lynn. And, uh, and I, I, I actually lunch with him a few times back in the early 90s. He's passed away. Uh, but he wrote a great book on Ted Williams. And, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's great to – I get off on reading Ted Williams' uh, writing. Me too. Uh, because he's such an interesting character in the game's history. 
like if you could put Ted Williams books on a grinder profile, like that would be like every picture of mine. <laughs> Maybe I haven't thought of it in those terms, but absolutely. You know, he'd, sure. get, he'd get a lot of visits. <laughs> it might be like, I mean, given, take the picture of like him and Jimmy Fox and the jock straps. And that, that might be more successful than anything <laughs> I ever put on grinder. Uh, let's put the, put the pin on that and do the show open real fast and then dig into this because Ed Lynn is a good segue into where we want to go. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 55, the Oral Hershiser episode of Three Strikes You're Out. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports and Baseball Prospectus, and it's a very special edition because it's yet another Ted Williams episode here on Three Strikes You're Out. Uh, the other voice you are hearing on the other end is a columnist and author of Wicked Good Year about the 2007-2008 championship Red Sox, Patriots, and Celtics, as well as a sports columnist on The Athletic, and I should have led with that that credit, I'm sorry, uh, Steve Buckley joining us here. Thanks for joining me, Steve. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a little hurt that there were 54 people before me, but, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? It, uh, you, you wrote the column at the end of September, and then they hit the playoffs, so, you know, it's... <laughs> Uh, but man, yeah, it is. It is great to talk to you because um, it's Steve wrote an amazing story about the last at bat of Ted Williams that was published uh, on the 60th anniversary this past September 28th, called First Hand Memories of Ted Williams and His Loud Last at Bat 60 Years Later." I will link to it in the show description here and also on Twitter. And uh, Ed Lynn, I think, is a good segue because Ed Lynn also wrote a classic reminiscence of the last at bat. It's not as well known as the John Updike one but it's about more from the perspective of someone who was in the trenches as a sports writer with Ted Williams that day and faced the wrath of Teddy for the last time after the game. And so I guess the question I'll lead with is as a Boston sports writer, how do you look back at the writers of that period? Are, are they, do you kind of think of them as well, that's Boston or do you think of them as hot take artists? Well, it, it, it wasn't all of the Boston writers. Uh, Ted Williams uh, would pick and choose which guys he'd speak to. And to give you an example of this, back in um, 2000, Ted was still alive, and I was working for the Boston Herald back then. And we were planning a like 90-page color glossy pullout that we were going to write and edit and have ready to go when Ted died. Uh, newspapers do advance obits. We were going to do an advanced special section. And one of the stories I wrote, I went through a treasure trove of old Ted Williams photos. And there was a picture of Ted in the late 50s, a little boy, like five or six years old in a Red Sox uniform. <clears throat> and I said, I want to find that little kid and write about him. And I did. And I forget his name, Ted something. And he lived out in Springfield, about 100 miles west of Boston. And it turned out, I said, how is it that you ended up on, in the dugout posing for a photo with Ted Williams? And he knew a guy, his family knew a guy, his name was Keating, who worked for the Holyoke Transcript, which was a small newspaper. It's, it's gone out of business. Um, out in Western Holyoke, we call it Holyoke. <laughs> and he worked for the Holyoke Transcript. And small paper, 100 miles west of here. But this guy, Keating, would cover Red Sox games. And Ted liked him. And Ted used to give him stories and do, give, him, give this guy one-on-one -on -one interviews. And when Keating said, hey, can I bring my friend's kid? Sure, sure, bring him in. And one of the reasons Ted did that, and, and the, the kid, the guy, told me, 
and, and other writers have backed this up, and you may have come across this yourself. Ted had a way of choosing the guy from the small paper that nobody paid much attention to. Hmm. And just to piss off the guys <laughs> from the record and the Globe and the Herald Traveler and, and, and so forth, he would pull this guy aside and just give him all, you know, run his arms out, give him all these flowery quotes. And the guy would run off to his little paper out in Western Mass and write this big one-on-one with Ted Williams. And again, it was just to piss off the, uh, the, the, the beat guys. And um, I kind of admire that. That's, that's a good way. That's, a, that's good trench warfare right there. Absolutely. He put effort into it. Like, and nothing describes Ted's relationship <clears throat> with writers better than kindness out of spite. Yes, yes, that's that's a good way to put it, and uh, and there were other guys he got along with. Obviously, Dave Egan, the Colonel, was was in a special class, and uh, Dave, um, who wrote for the precursor of my old newspaper, I wrote for the Herald, he wrote for the Record, and then in 1972, the Record American and the Herald Traveler merged, <clears throat> and eventually they chopped it up, and it became the Boston Herald, a tabloid. So, in a way, I worked at the same paper he did you know, by generations. And uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, Dave Egan was, um, was a snarky, snipey, one-liner-ish uh, guy who had an enormous following. And, and, and his following is so significant that, uh, and this was a bright guy, he went to Harvard. And, but he, he had issues with the bottle <laughs> and he would have to, take the leave of absence once in a while to, to get his house in order, so to speak. And the legend goes that when he was off drying out, that the editors of the record didn't want to, because again, in those days, it was the people didn't get the paper delivered. They picked it up in the corner at the candy store and so forth. Or, you know, the, the hawkers are like, extra, extra, read all about it. And um, so there would be younger staffers who would be assigned to write Dave Egan's column. <laughs> and 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 they would ghost it, and the column would appear in the paper. And again, so goes the legend that um, that they would say of certain writers, "Oh, he does a good Dave Egan. He, <laughs> not, he doesn't do a good Dave Egan." And, and and is it true? Is it not true? Who knows? But as as they said in the man who shot Liberty Valance, print the legend, and yep. uh, that's where we are. Yeah, Dave Egan, the little bit I know about him, and again, it's just from reading a couple of the the TED books, so I know mostly just that secondhand information, but he seems like almost a precursor to, I don't know, maybe Jim Rome is the first name that that springs to mind, like one of those guys who just wants to be the center of attention for having said the thing that gets everybody talking. Yeah, I mean, if you take out the lights and the makeup and uh, the, the fancy clothes and Vegas and all the trappings of Jim Rome's life, uh, I, I can see how you draw that parallel. Um, I, I don't, you know, Jim Rome, of course, has a national following. I don't think Dave Egan was too well known. I, I mean, the writers all across the country knew him, of course, but I don't think your casual White Sox or Cubs fan would know Dave Egan. Uh, I don't think he was syndicated. May have been. I don't think he was because I'd be surprised if he was because his the, the gleanings, the writings of his that I've seen were very, very local. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> he wrote for Boston. There, there was another one. Um, when Casey Stengel managed the National League team, which at the time was called the Bees, and um, uh, Casey got hit by a car, and he, and he had to miss a month, and uh, I think it was in Kenmore Square, and a taxi cab hit him, you know, just not nothing serious, obviously, because he was managing the Mets 40 years later, but apparently Dave Egan, one of his one-liners, 
he nominated the driver who hit Casey Stengel for man of the year. Oh, God. <laughs> and uh, good line. Yeah. Know, a little over the top. Uh, yeah. He wanted to get hurt and celebrate uh-huh. that kind of thing. But uh, again, it was a different time. And, um, and, and, and just to be clear on this, uh, Ted Williams could be a jerk. I mean, oh, let's, absolutely. Let's, yes. let's not mince any words. Let's not lionize him. And uh, I, I met Ted Williams. I interviewed him several times much later in life. And he was a lamb by then, of course. He was, he was in the uh, celebratory phase of his life. And, uh, and, but, but even then, you could see. Uh, can I tell you a, qu- a quick story about interviewing Ted Williams? Yes. I, I want to hear everything, please. It wasn't really an interview, but in 1986, <laughs> I was covering the ALCS, Red Sox versus Angels. And I was staying at the Marriott in Anaheim, where it so happened the Red Sox were staying. And the lobby is like a million people in the lobby. And I came down to the lobby uh, before one of the games. And um, who do I run into but Ben Mondor, the late Ben Mondor, who is the owner of the Pawtucket Red Sox. Hmm. And I, I had been covering minor league baseball for three years. I was doing the main guides. I was working in Portland, Maine. And I had seen a gazillion Pawtucket Red Sox games. So I knew all of the minor league players. Uh, and, and I was pretty well read on them and having covered them. So I'm talking to Ben, who comes walking up with Ted Williams, who knows Ben very well, because at the time, Ted was a Red Sox spring training instructor and would occasionally go down to Pawtucket to work with players. Now, Ted's got a security guy from the Marriott because there are 5,000 fans in the lobby, as, as happens during October in the playoffs. And this guy's job is to, hey, whoa, whoa, come on, stay. Well, Ted comes up starts talking to Ben and he goes, is this your kid? And Ben says, no, this is Steve Buckley. He works for the uh, Portland Press Herald up in Maine. Like he covers the main guides. He covers a lot of AAA. And now the security guy is keeping all these fans away from us mm. because there's the three of us having this conversation. Whoa, whoa, hey, whoa, these guys talking. Go, you know, back. Well, Ted says, oh, so you cover AAA, do you? <laughs> and at that moment, oh, no. Ben Mondor says, oh, got to go. My ride's here. Ha! <laughs> And, and, and Ben walks off. Now I'm alone and I'm 30 years old. I'm not like a child, but I'm, I've never interviewed. I mean, I've interviewed Ted Williams in a crowd, but now I'm alone with him with a security guy, keeping people away from me and Ted. (laughs) And Ted is interviewing me. And he says, well, what do you, and he's like, wow, what do you think of this guy? And I'm like, well, you know, and he's like, what do you think of this guy? And I tell, and then he asked me a third time about a third player who I will not divulge, and I promised I never would. And he says, "What do you think of so and so?" And I said, "Well, you know." And I spoke of him in a very praiseworthy fashion. He says, "Nope, nope, 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 nope. He's just not a big league hitter. No, no, no." And I'm arguing with the greatest hitter who ever lived oh about the merits of a minor league baseball player. Wow. I went, well, I didn't mean to say, you know, and I'm like melting. And this went on for a couple of minutes. He's, well, good to talk to you. And he walks <laughs> off. And of course, the 5,000 fans and the security guard went with him. And I'm just a schmuck in the lobby by myself now. And, uh, but just in that little exchange, and he was in a good mood, but he just, he wanted to kibitz because he was, he was, I'm sorry, he was all about hitting. Mm-hmm. And I had information about, I had seen minor league players with whom he had worked in spring training and during maybe the occasional trip in the minor leagues. And he wanted to hear, what do you think of this guy, this guy, and this guy? And I'm telling you, when he left, I was like, whew. Yeah. And it's a great, it's a great memory to have. Every, every 
record I have of like reading of conversations with Ted sounds fascinating, absorbing, and utterly exhausting. Yeah. And I think that's the way he wanted it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's, let's dig into uh, your piece too uh, at this point, because it's, it's, there's a dichotomy with Ted Williams that whenever you discuss him, that you have to acknowledge both ends of the spectrum. He could be, as you said, a total asshole many times. Like he was blunt, he was profane. Uh, and there was the other side of him that even when he wasn't trying to spite Boston sports writers could show like tremendous random acts of kindness. And that was the thing that stuck out to me above everything else in your piece in your discussion of all the players that are still alive who played in his last game uh, back in 1960, was how many of them had some story of just like one small gesture or just a bit of time he took with them that you look at and go, ah, geez, Teddy, you didn't have to do that. That's great. Well, Uh, Ted, Ted, you know, when when you said Ted could be feisty and whatnot, I mean, that tended to be with sports writers. He was notoriously, I shouldn't say notorious, he was famously uh, kind to clubhouse kids and bat boys and elevator operators and and, and people like that. And he was also, um, he, he, he was also into hitting to a degree that as, as I pointed out in the piece and just I'll go right to this one guy, Albie Pearson, who was, you know, as I put in the story, five foot, nothing and a hundred nothing. He was like Rudy. He was like a five <laughs> foot five outfielder who had played four or five years in the Red Sox minor league system. And, and by 1960, he was playing for the, um, for the Baltimore Orioles. And during batting practice, and it's in the story, uh, Albie had hit. And again, he's a tiny little guy. And uh, But earlier that season, and I'm, maybe it was the year before when he was with uh, Washington, um, when he first came up, he went from Boston to Washington to the Orioles and then to the Angels. And he wasn't hitting much. And after BP, he was running out to the outfield, and he heard this whistle. <laughs> and it was, it was Ted Williams. He was in the door to the, the, the left field, the green monster. And he called him over. And, and he said, you know, you're, you're looking for this pitch and you should look for that. And he's giving him batting tips. And he says, he says, they're going to pitch you away because they know you're going to swing at this. And he says, when, you know, when they throw that, 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 that low outside, let it, let it go, let it go. Wait for your pitch. You know, it was that classic get a good pitch to hit, which was the, the mantra. That was the whole thing for Ted Williams. Now, he's giving batting tips to an opposing player which certainly wouldn't have gone over well with <laughs> Bill Bouquet and Jack LeMabe and uh, uh, Frank Sullivan and other pitchers on the Red Sox of that era. But they probably knew that because Ted was, was hitting. Mm-hmm. And he, he saw the kid play. He, again, he was, if you look him up, L.B. Pearson was tiny. And, um, and, and he told me that story, and, and he said he had – three games in a row a couple of days later he got two hits three games in a row and he looked it up and he's correct mm. and he ends up at the angels he was the starting center fielder in the 1965 all-star game had a couple of hits now i'm not suggesting that that albie pearson would have ended up on the gutter if it weren't for that little batting tip but albie thinks it does <laughs> albie thinks it is mm. i mean he he spoke very eloquently about that and very excited with and um and i mean i'm sitting in the very spot where i interviewed him over the phone uh, three or four months ago, and and he was he was a trip, and he he spoke about Ted Williams very eloquently and very excitedly, and uh, and again, Albie wasn't a sports writer; he didn't have a notebook and a pencil. He was a big league hitter, and Ted saw flaws that Ted thought that he could correct, and I admire that. 
Absolutely. And I think I, I've got just a personal theory behind that, that just given the way that he enthused about hitters throughout his entire life, that I think he believed that baseball as a sport was always at its best whenever players everywhere reached their full potential as hitters, regardless of whether they were. I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it was really hitters, maybe, maybe not so much pitchers. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> certainly. Yeah, yeah. Back when he managed the Washington Senators, he was famous for yelling out, "Pitchers don't know shit" at his own. Well, so there's a there's a famous story. Um, spring training, uh, the Senators in Pompano, 1969, and I, I forget the two coaches, but they they Kelly, were doing. Kelly Fox is one. I know that. Is this the bunting thing? Yes. And and. Uh, and 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 the other one, it, 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 he 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 was from Boston, and he was a minor league, and I've met him, and I can't think of his name, uh, Italian guy. It'll come to me. I'll call you at three in the morning. <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> and you're gonna hang up on me. But uh, they were arguing over the merits of the hit and run or bunting drill or something like that. And and finally, Ted got into the and got into the conversation, and he says, Ah, fuck it, let's hit. Is that the version <laughs> you heard? Yes, yes, yeah. it is one of my all-time favorites. And yeah. honestly, in, in, if they would have let him, I'm sure the title of my turn at bat would have been "Fuck it, let's hit." Yeah, and uh, and and by the way, in 1969, when he managed the Senators, 1969 was truly a big year for me because hmm. obviously '67 with the Impossible Dream Red Sox is huge, and and that is why we're having this discussion again. I fell so in love with baseball, but two years later, I was 13, 1969. And it was a pivotal year for me because it was the first year I could go to Fenway with buddies without adult supervision. Hmm. Now you would think 13 years old, but, but again, it was you know over 50 years ago. And, uh, and my uncle was an usher at Fenway right behind the Red Sox dugout. And I had a way of getting into Fenway through one of his buddies. And I could always sit behind the dugout and watch games. I would get into Fenway through his friend at Gate D I would wait until the third inning and then go see my uncle Fitzy. And then he would give me a seat and I'd watch the games, but I, I must've gone to five or six senators games that because I wanted to see Ted Williams. Now I was four when he had the last at bat home run off of Fisher. So obviously I, I was too young to have ever seen him. And if I, if I did go to a game, which I didn't, I, I wouldn't remember it probably, but I did see Ted Williams manage the Senators. It's obviously not the same, but I saw him in that gray uniform with the red, you know, stitching and all that. And uh, so, so I, I get to get to say I shared uh, or participated or monitored or audited, whatever you want to call it, part of Ted Williams's baseball career. So I, I take that with me to the grave. Yeah. And and just getting to see someone who is that much of a legend yeah. in the flesh at any point is a thrill. Exactly. That uh, I wanted to, um, after my college graduation, uh, my dad took me to Cooperstown for the Hall of Fame inductions. And, and I, where did you I, go to college? I uh, went to Kenyon College in Ohio. And what did I throw at you? Rutherford B. Hayes, do it off the top of your head. Yep. <laughs> and just, yeah. I, 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 need to, I need to have that in the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, usually, most people go Paul Newman, but yeah, Rutherford is okay. our, other, our, our other go-to. Um, but I wanted to go, to, I picked Cooperstown because it was 2000s. So that was one year after the Fenway All-Star game. You knew he didn't have much time left. Right. And uh, it was Fisk going into the hall that year. And I figured there's a chance that if he's healthy enough, he'll show. Oh, were you there? Uh, yeah. Yes. I, I was there. The Fisk spoke for an hour and a half. Yeah. My God. <laughs> like, and this is just as, as I was starting stand-up comedy. And so I barely knew about this, this concept, but I'm sit still sitting there thinking, Give him the light. Somebody give him the light. For God's sake, the light. 
which well, is the classic signal of uh, I, I, I was on the radio a few days later, and I, I'll share the line with you that I used on the radio. Uh, <clears throat> I said, for years, we, helped, we talked about how Pesky held the ball. <laughs> now and forever, we'll talk about the day Fisk held the mic. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, that's, and that ties it up together well, history-wise. Um, let me ask you this, too, about uh, the last at-bat. Uh, why does that particular moment resonate seemingly above everyone, maybe except for the last doubleheader of 1941 with Ted, would you say? I, I would actually say it's above that. Really? Uh, well, from, from a historical perspective, the doubleheader against the Philadelphia Rays is, is more significant because he became the last 400 hitter. So any historian of the game, would 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 say that's much more important, which in the grand scheme of things it is. Um, the home run he hit off of Fisher in the final game of the '60 season was just one more home run. It, it didn't break any records. He his 500. He was already in the 500 club. The game didn't mean anything. So, in in terms of historical value, it doesn't mean anything. But there is uh, something about going out on top. And as I think I've used it in 20 stories, I probably used it in that one, is that whatever we're doing in life, whether we're selling linoleum or, or I think I used that line, actually, hmm. uh, you want to hit a home run, you last it back. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'll know that the last column I write is the last column I write, because I may write it and get fired the next day or die or something but but if i decide to retire and i know this is the last one i'm gonna want it to be pretty darn good and and i think that has always resonated with people and it and and you know fisher didn't groove him fisher throw fastballs he 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 wasn't gonna get you know ahead in the count one two and then throw a big curveball in the dirt and try to get him to fish um he gave him that um, but, but he threw his best fastballs. I mean, the game was still meant something at the time to, to him anyway. And he wasn't a, um, he wasn't a, uh, uh, established big leaguer at that point, obviously. So, um, he wasn't going to throw him a lollipop. So, so Ted earned it. And, and again, people respect that. Uh, I think Updike's essay has taken it and, and given it a, added oomph because the prose was so eloquent and, uh, a, a generations of sports writers, including myself, have cited it, and and because it's the go-to, you can't write a story with about Ted's final game without at some point mentioning that, and 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 I did because it you know, fit nicely with what I was writing. So I think I think that's the reason. I think people want to go out in style, and what better way to go out in style if you're a big league ball player um, than to hit a home run? And I think. Um, I forget his name. I, I wish I'd read one of those guys hit a home run that was in that game, hit a home run in his final at bat. Yeah. Uh, he just didn't. Was uh, it uh, Don Gile? I think it was. Don Gile. Yeah, Gile. Don Gile. And, uh, and, and, and Don Gile hit a home run in his final at bat. Mm -hmm. And uh, which, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And <laughs> he just didn't know it. Yeah. And, it, and really getting interviewed for a story about Ted's final at that means that we get to hear his story again. That's, that's yeah. the only way for most of us that we'd ever find that out, which in and of itself is, is kind of cool. And yeah. I love, um, speaking of Jack Fisher, that I love that you got a little extra out of him in your story too about, uh, I mean, he went through, as, as you described it, kind of the Broadway performance of the story that he's told hundreds of, of times at this point. 
And then kind of at the end, he gave you a little extra after uh, like a couple hours after the game had ended and he'd gone back to Baltimore. He'd gone back to Baltimore. It, 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 it was cited uh, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, but only as a one-liner. And I, I kind of fleshed out a little bit. And he said, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but what happened was he, he, he was, they went back to Baltimore and then they were going to bus down to Washington the next day to close out the season against the original Senators. And so he was just staying in a hotel in Baltimore and um, he decided um, to, to call Ted Williams. And um, Ted was staying at the, um, I think the Somerset and he called the hotel and told him who he was and, and he put him through and, and they had a very nice conversation where, where they were talking on the phone and stuff. And uh, that's a, that's quite, you know, oh, you know, and, and I can hear Ted, oh, thanks so much for, challenge me like that i really appreciate that and he's just a just a kid mm-hmm. and uh, uh i don't want to say nobody because he was a major league pitcher and i respect anybody who plays in the major leagues but certainly didn't have the cachet that ted williams had and, and again it, it's ted being uh treating this kid as with the respect that a major league baseball player deserves yeah and a pitcher now, no it, in a picture, no less. And I, I, if if some sports writer had called Ted Williams at eleven o'clock at night to shoot the breeze, <laughs> it might have been a different outcome. A little bit, yeah. Okay. And I, I would like the recording of that actually at that event. Yeah. And, um, and by the way, I, I should point out that um, I, I actually got a second story out of this. Um, I, I didn't use it in that story, but when I was talking to Brooks Robinson, mm-hmm. and if you go back through the, my, my stories, um, when I was talking to Brooks Robinson. Well, it turns out that he was going to get married as soon as that season was over. And he got married like two weeks later in Detroit to, to his still wife. And he told me this great story about when the Orioles had a getaway game, in, in, I guess in 59, and they were playing in Kansas City. And then they flew to Boston. And then we have an off day in Boston from Kansas City where they're playing the Kansas City A's. And he fancied one of the flight attendants and asked her out and she wasn't sure if he was, if she was going to stay in Boston or they might put her on another flight to Chicago. So he got the number her name and the name of the hotel and called her later on. And they went out and had dinner, went for a walk in the common. <clears throat> they stayed in touch in the off season. And he told me this wonderful story, which I kept out of this piece because it would have been too much of a segue, a tangent. And I wrote it as a whole separate story about how on a random flight to Boston in 1959, Brooks Robinson met the woman who is to this day his wife. So when you see pictures of Ted rounding the bases, you see Brooks kind of leaning over with his hands and his knees. He was the third baseman in that game. And, um, and it's the last game of Ted Williams. That's all anybody cares about. Well, there's Brooks Robinson. He's going to get married in 10 days. Oh, gee. Uh, so I think that was kind of cool. Yeah. That's wonderful. And, uh, yeah. And that, that sounds like a total Brooks Robinson story, too, that every indication I have is he is like one of the total sweethearts of baseball. Oh, I actually met him when I was like 14. Hmm. And, uh, and um, I grew up in Cambridge, and there was a guy in my neighborhood who had played big league baseball. And he was a pretty good player. I think it was Eddie Wakers. And oh, nice. Eddie, Ex-Cub, yeah. And Eddie played for the Cubs. And, uh, and Eddie had a tough life. He was shot by a deranged fan. Mm-hmm. And he was in World War II. I forget what battle he was in, but um, 
he, he had a tough time after his career ended, but he lived in my neighborhood and he would occasionally come down to where we were playing and hit us grounders. And he actually taught me how to play first base. Not that I could play first base. And, uh, but he was just a guy in the neighborhood. He would, we didn't think of him as any, Oh, it's Mr. Hey, Eddie. Like hmm. that. Well, then Eddie died. And, um, uh, in his old bed, I didn't realize because you know, didn't have the internet. We didn't have access uh, my father would say, oh, my father had seen him. My father grew up in Cambridge. My father said, oh, you should have seen him down in Cambridge Park when he was younger. He was a flashy fielder and all that. Well, in his old bit, it, it mentioned that he ended his career with the Baltimore Orioles and that he was teammates with a young Brooks Robinson. Well, the next time the Orioles came to town, my buddies and I went into the hotel with the Statler Hilton in Park Square where the Orioles, we knew, we knew where all the teams stayed. And um, we just wanted to go up to Brooks Robinson and tell him we knew Eddie Wakers. Hmm. And we were not, he was sitting there in a couch in the lobby. I remember like it was yesterday. And he sees us. He goes, what do you want, big boy? And I said, oh, I just want to introduce myself. We're, we're all from Cambridge. And uh, uh, I didn't know if you knew Eddie Wakers died uh, last summer or last October, I think it was. Oh, I heard about that. Did you know him? And we ended up talking to Brooks Robinson about Eddie Wakers for like 10 minutes. And uh, it, was, it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that and that's I mean that's how you personally connect to somebody like that is, yeah. is, is to kind of you could see why I went into this business, I guess, right? You yeah, know, oh, yeah. yeah, and I recognize the name Eddie Wakus right away. So you see why yeah. I'm kind of been in it too. Exactly. Yeah. Uh one more quick I'm I want to ask kind of a, a hypothetical before we uh wrap this up here. But uh we're doing this on the day where Major League Baseball has officially acknowledged that it will be recognizing Negro leagues as official major league statistics. And we both know that Ted Williams, one of the things he's associated with is for Negro league induction into the hall of fame in his 1966 speech. Um, Knowing the kind of person he was in terms of, especially as regards to other ball players where it didn't matter race, creed, or color. If you could play ball, he wanted you to be as good as you can be. And he wanted to elevate you as, as a ball player. And this is this is a real hypothetical question, but if Ted Williams had known a ball player was LGBTQ, do you think he would have accepted him in his club? <laughs> um, uh, I'll say yes because there's there's no other, there's no other way to if 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 the person could play, uh, yes, uh, I'll let it go with that because the the historical record. All that we have to go on is that African-American players, that he, he championed their cause. And by the way, to flesh this narrative out a little bit, uh, you know, we've all written stories on the late Pumsey Green. It was the first black player to play for the Red Sox. And I did a, I did a big piece on him back in 1993 for Boston Magazine and had a great talk with him. And Pumsey told me that two of the players who were the most kind to him uh, were Ted Williams and, 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 I mean, Ted, Ted was in there talking, hitting with him for an hour okay. and, and Pumsey had to like break away from, you know, Ted Williams to, to, to go dress. And, um, but one was Pumsey Green. I'm, I'm sorry. One was Ted Williams. It was Bill Monbouquet. And, uh, and this is a tangent, but Bill Monbouquet grew up in Medford, Massachusetts. He grew up in West Medford. Historically, West Medford back during the, during the evolution days uh, was a big stopping point for the Underground Railroad. So escaped slaves being spirited up to Canada would be housed in various places in West Medford. After uh, the Civil War, a lot of African-Americans settled in, in West Medford. And to this day, as 
recently as a few years ago, I don't know if it's changed now, um, there was still a lot of African-Americans living in West Medford. And it's, it's a nice little, uh, it's a nice little area. And Bill Mombaquette grew up in West Medford. And when Pumsey told me about Bill Mombaquette, who I knew, he passed away a few years ago, a wonderful guy. And Bill loved Ted Williams. And I called Bill and I said, Pumsey was saying these great things about you and this, that, and the other thing. And he said, Buck, I, I grew up in West Medford. I, I played hockey. I played baseball with black kids growing up. It, it was, it was, and he just didn't, he didn't much want to talk about it. He says, it was just no big deal. Uh, there was a coach on the Red Sox. Um, his last name is Baker. And um, when Pumsey Green was playing for the Red Sox, this Red Sox coach was race baiting Minnie Minoso across the field with Pumsey Green sitting on the bench. And, and this is from Pumsey Green directly that Bill Monbouquet got up, walked across the dugout to Baker and said, hey, what are you doing? Look who we, this guy's our teammate, knock it off. And it wasn't like grabbed him by the throat and punch. It was just like, knock it off. <laughs> and and that Pumsey never forgot that. And he never forgot that, that Ted Williams talked hitting with him. <laughs> and I don't think Ted was like, oh, I'm gonna welcome this, this you know kid to the big leagues. Like, he just wanted, oh, what, you know, what, what's this guy throwing down at AAA? It's, I love that. It was yeah. just, the other thing about Ted was, I'm sure you've gleaned this from the books that you've read, is that as, as a brash rookie, and he was all of that, that, that he occasionally would be in the outfield while the game was going on, and he'd be, like, doing his batting stance and, like, like doing imaginary hitting just to, you know, he was thinking hitting when he was supposed to be playing left field. And people have said, oh, Ted was never much of a fielder. And I've always said, I don't, and I didn't see him play, obviously, but I don't think he was a bad fielder. I think he was an indifferent fielder. Right. I think I, I don't think he's I think he saw it as something he had to do so that there would then then be three outs and he could hit again. <laughs> yeah. And he says, yeah. soon this will be over and I can go hit. <laughs> and um I'm told he played the wall well as Yaz did. Uh but I, I I've never heard too many stories and if there were I've forgotten them of him making tremendous diving catches because uh I, I don't think I think he could have. Obviously he was a great athlete. Um I would have loved to see him play basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with the hand eye, uh, but uh, I but his his mindset was hitting 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 hitting. Yeah, and out in the field, like especially early on, he was famous for doing the batting stance, as you said, and then occasionally, especially in his minor league days, he would run after balls that got past him while slapping himself in the ass with his glove. So, yeah, yeah. Over. And right. really, I I have a theory that he was one of the first players who was uh, about expressing himself in eccentric ways like that for people to see, which is something that we're fighting in the game today about guys like that. And that was Ted's misfortune that he had this kind of personality running up against the baseball era of the 1940s, where we know how conformist the sport is now. Imagine how bad it was 70, 80 years ago. In yeah. Fact, and, I, and just to be clear on this, not, not to turn this into a different discussion, but uh, we need more of that in baseball. Uh, yes, I'm a, I'm a big fan of styling on home runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and my simple answer is that if you're a pitcher, you don't want that to happen. Don't give up home runs and that will go away. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's big. And I've written this and said this a million times. So if it sounds rehearsed, I apologize. But baseball is the only sport where the ultimate creation of offense is to be treated as a sad, somber occasion. 
<laughs> when you when you score a touchdown, you, you can spike the ball. You're basketball. You you run up and down the court like this. In hockey, it's like a it's it's like a a, a big sex thing at the blue line. Everyone gets together. <laughs> all the players they all hug and kiss. Everything on a go. When you hit a home run, you have to have your head down and be ashamed of it. Run around the bases like this. No, I just want everyone to celebrate the creation of offense. And, and and Ted himself said the hardest thing to do is to hit a pitch ball. Yes, and, and uh, it, it's uh, I I I played a little tiny baseball. I played pickup leagues and stuff. And spring training, you can go down. At least you, I remember when Kurt Schilling in '04, um, his first year with the Red Sox, he was going to throw live BP, and a bunch of us went down to one of the minor league fields, and you could just stand right by the batting cage. So his batting cage catches like three feet in front of us and the batter's there and the shilling's in the mound. And, and it's the closest you can get to seeing big league caliber pitching. And, and he's this big guy. And he's like, Phew. and it, whoa, how does anybody ever hit big league pitching ever? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, that's a fastball. Now he throws a curveball. Now it's a, now it's some kind of forkball or something. And, you know, and, and there are certain pitchers. I remember when, um, when, um, like Marischal, when I, with that high kick, how did anyone ever not look at the leg mm-hmm. when the pitch was coming in? Like, I'd be looking at the leg because it's the toe is up here. And then all of a sudden, there's a pitch going by. And, and I find it impossible for anybody. That's why when someone says, oh, this guy's a bum, no, he's not a bum. He's one of the best 750, whatever it is, baseball players on the planet mm-hmm. to be in the, in the major leagues. And if you get to the major leagues and you hit a home run, like you should never have to, like you should get free cab fare for life. Yes. Because it's so, and Ted said this, the hardest thing to do is hit a pitch ball. The hardest thing to hit a home run. Anyone hits a home run, it's like, wow, the guy hit a home run in the big leagues. So. Yeah. And uh, as you say, that if pitchers don't want them to celebrate, don't give up home runs. And as 521 pitchers can attest, it is physically impossible not to give up home runs to Ted Williams. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Steve, do you have anything to plug while I still got you here? I just want to plug the fact that I absolutely love writing for The Athletic. It's it's given me a forum to to sort of expand my lungs a little bit and – write longer pieces. I mean, I, I do columns that are, you know, your typical thousand word columns and this guy should get traded, fire the man, you know, all that. But to, I, I just spent, uh, I just had a 5,000 word piece literally 50 years ago at this very moment, the world premiere of love story was taking place of the movie in New York city. And it, Oliver Barrett, the fourth is this Harvard kid who played the hockey team. Well, there were two big scenes early in the movie that involved Harvard playing hockey and all the players on both teams, uh, Harvard versus Dartmouth and Harvard versus um, Cornell were all Harvard players, active Harvard players used as extras. And I tracked them all down. I interviewed them. Ryan O'Neill, the actor, this was his big breakout role. I interviewed him. Billy Cleary, who was the longtime Harvard coach. He was 35 back then. He was, if you watch the movie, he was Ryan O'Neill's body double for the skating scenes. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was such a lot of fun to write that piece. And uh, while I would applaud all of you listeners to go find my Ted Williams story and read that, uh, please also um, read my love story piece because it, it brought me great satisfaction. 
Wonderful. I will link to that on uh, the Twitter yeah. and the show bio as well. So uh, Thank yeah. you. this has been a pleasure, Steve. Uh, as Updike wrote, gods do not answer letters, but thank you for answering <laughs> my text. Oh, it was a pleasure. You came, uh, you came highly recommended by Sid Ziegler and Alex Freeman, so uh, I couldn't say no. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you.